0: Hello, my Dharma brothers and sisters. Oh, I think I have to hit continue. Hold on. Or gently touch continue. <laughs> uh, my name is Nettie Mushin. I'm a Zen priest now in Canberra. I can see Stan and Hello. Um, I was at Santa Cruz Zen Centre for quite a a bit of time, which I'm going to say a few words about, and I I moved to Canberra eight months ago. And uh, one of the reasons was to establish a Soto Zen Centre here, which is what we are in the process of doing. My first connection with Santa Cruz was 18 years ago. But it was at the time when Catherine Thanis Dayosho passed away and uh, we could say that she continued in the same way as uh, the seeds of a dandelion blow into the wind. And one of those seeds found a little fertile patch in me and I decided to make Santa Cruz Zen Center my home. It's like I turned my face towards the sun of Santa Cruz Zen Center in the same way as a flower in a field turns towards the warmth of the sun. And I was fortunate to know, as much as one can know anything in the world of appearances and conditions, that I was only going to be there for about those nine years, nine and a half years. I knew at that time that the plan was to return to Australia mid-2021. And one of the very positive effects... Of that knowing was that it encouraged me to pay attention to as much as I could at Santa Cruz Zen Center, to pay attention to the forms, to Sangha relationships, to the instructions from my root teacher, Kokyo Henkel, and to the other teachers at Santa Cruz Zen Center, uh, uh, Patrick and Jean, who are here now, and, uh, and others that came and went, giving talks and participating in various capacities, and the many, many senior Sangha members and the new Sangha members So the the sense of my temporary time there encouraged a deeper listening in me and a deeper uh, seeing or watching in me. And Catherine watched Suzuki Roshi and received the seeds of the Dharma from him. And the teachers at Santa Cruz Zen Center watched Catherine listened to her and nurtured those seeds there. And in the same way, uh, Kokyo's teacher, Reb Anderson learned from Suzuki Roshi and watched him and Kokyo watched Reb. And then those two streams that had just, just separated for a little bit of time, then came back together at Santa Cruz. And now a little rivulet from that same stream has trickled across the clouds of the Pacific Ocean and landed here in Santa Cruz. I mean, in Canberra, in Canberra, Australia. And one of the reasons I wanted to give the talk from here in front of our altar is to just sort of celebrate with you the influence of my years at Santa Cruz that it's had on the formation of this temple here and, and normally the macugio would not sit right in front of the altar, but I did just want to show it to you a little tiny bit. It's too heavy to lift. I would say it's identical in size to the Makugyo at Santa Cruz, but it's, it's thicker and heavier. It's quite, quite difficult to lift. So I don't want to try lifting it with one hand. Maybe, no, I'm not going to try. And, um, and we have not as big a bell, as the one at Santa Cruz, but quite a nice size bell. We have two inkins and quite a few other bells and strikers and clappers. We have um, a library and zafus and zabutons and sitting stools and chairs. And all all of this has kind of been held in my mind, the images from Santa Cruz held in my mind as we... Built this here, and just this one piece of fabric I want to show you. It's a beautiful color that, that we put over the makugio, similar to the one at Santa Cruz. And that's what I was thinking when there's a store here. Surprisingly, uh, a Japanese kimono fabric store. So I went there and found just sort of like offcuts of fabrics, and and made this cover for the makugio. So a kind of uh, transmission of listening and watching or seeing, a sort of listening scene uh, has been happening and has res- resulted in the appearances here. And the, the incense that we have has three, three legs, just like the incense in Santa Cruz. And we have a main candle and two upright candles And we have a little chiddening table in the same kind of spot, similar spot to where it was in Santa Cruz. And we're going to continue the tradition of keeping all the offcuts of the wax. And probably for us, once a year, we'll be able to make one new candle from the offcuts of the wax. So I'm just going to read a few words from Catherine's book, the truth of this life about about the power of paying attention to right now. The chapter is uh, well. It's really the title of a talk that she gave. One thing means one thing. One dictionary definition of commitment is an engagement that restricts one's choices yet to make a commitment to one thing frees us to engage it completely commitment to zazen is a commitment to not moving away from ourselves to doing what is immediately in front of us to knowing this mind and body as deeply as we can one doesn't need to go to a monastery in the mountains to do this practice it can be done when we are with a, with the family at work with friends one thing means one thing at a time give your complete attention to whatever is in front of you if distraction is there we are willing to be distraction we know we have no choice but to be this very arising mind body this is choiceless being this is the fundamental teaching of zen there is only this moment This timeless, simultaneously fleeting now, the now that is for you something like 7 p.m. and for here something like 1 p.m. For you it's a Wednesday, for us it's a Thursday. For Catherine she said 8 or 9 p.m. So that must have been a fairly late talk she was giving. (laughs) And the present moment that is always here. Whatever is arising for you, a joyful or difficult sensation, Pain in your knees or back, ease or good feeling, this is your life now. We learn to accept our experience as the fullness of our life. In, in the Buddha's time, just as it is today, people suffer and suffer often more than they need to. And they suffer often because they have inverted views. And When I heard the word inverted views for the first time, it kind of hit me kind of hard. It's a strong word to say inverted views. Because it's to say that whatever you're thinking is inaccurate and it's inverted. It's the opposite. But I think it is really a very accurate word. We think that we are a self, that we exist as an independent being. And in symmetry with that, when we think we exist, the more solidly we think of ourselves as existing, the more solidly we think of others as existing. They kind of go together. It's a a delusion dance. The stronger you feel you exist, the stronger you think others exist, which increases craving and aversion. So that is one inverted view. Another is to feel that things that are impermanent can bring you happiness by emotionally thinking that they are permanent. So seeing that which is impermanent as permanent is an inverted view. And that in fact grasping and pushing away will bring happiness, which is an inverted view. It doesn't do that. But it's easy to see how we do think that it does. Believing our thoughts is an inverted view. There's nothing that we can think about the world of phenomena With any accuracy we can functionally think in ways that are more useful and more helpful but we we can never know anything about the world of appearances and yet most people do tend to believe their own thoughts about the world tend to believe their own perceptions so because of this at the buddha's time and today the buddha taught The Four Noble Truths, the the causes of suffering and the liberation of suffering. And in those teachings, he taught the teachings of no self, no separate independent self. And as people were able to sort of settle with that a little bit, he then was able to teach not only is there no subject, there's also no object that the other beings that we see and the other things that come in through our sense gates are also not independently existent. And as his practitioners then, and as those of us who are practitioners now, settle in with those teachings and and feel the truth of those teachings, our, uh, our grasping and aversion diminish, and therefore our suffering, our restless, Dissatisfaction diminishes. And as that uh, restlessness diminishes, we uh, are quiet enough, mentally quiet enough, and physically quiet enough to hear Buddha's more subtle teachings. And I wanted to read a passage from. The Nirvana Sutra, Nirvana Sutta in, in Pali. And this is a section from Udana 8.3, translated by Vadasaru Bhikkhu, a Theravadin monk. And, and I'll read it once and then speak a little bit and read it again because this one passage you could spend a whole lifetime just uh, deepening your practice with this one passage. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savathi at Jetta's Grove, another Pindika's monastery. And on that occasion, the Blessed One was instructing, urging, rousing and encouraging the monks with Dharma talk concerned with unbinding the monks, receptive, attentive, focusing their entire awareness, lending ear, listened to the Dharma. Then, on realizing the significance of that, the Blessed One on that occasion exclaimed, there is monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, it would not be the case that escape from the born, become, made, fabricated, would be discerned. But precisely because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, escape from the born, become, made, fabricated, is discerned. So we could ask ourselves, what is it that is unmade, unborn, unbound, unfabricated, In in our experience, is there anything in our ordinary daily lives that we experience that is unborn, unmade, unfabricated? Is there anything in our experience that cannot be destroyed, If we sit quietly in Zazen, maybe for many years, with times in between to to go for walks and eat food and sleep, (laughs) but if we sit in Zazen for many years, and sometimes people don't even need many years, but most of us do, maybe we can see the unborn, unmade, unfabricated, right in front of us. There's a verse uh, from K7, Zhao Zhou's Wash Your Bowl in the Mumonkan. a verse by women that goes, because it is so very clear, it takes so long to realise. If we just know that flame is fire, we'll find our rice has long been cooked. Because it is so very clear, it takes so long to realise. So I think that uh, deep listening can only occur in this very moment. Can't occur any other place. Even if somebody says something and we don't pay very good attention at the time and then later on we reflect on what they said and then we hear it later on, we go, oh, That's what I think she was saying. Well, that's what I think he was saying. Even then, which appears to be later on, actually is now. The moment that we heard it was now. We heard it in our mind. We recalled the words they said. We heard it in our mind. And in that moment, we were able to listen. So all listening. Listening. All seeing occurs now. And one way I think that we appreciate now without even knowing that we appreciate it is when somebody listens to us. I'm sure all of us can think of moments where we really appreciate that someone heard what we said. We wanted to be heard. We had something to say and we said it and we got heard and we felt a deep inner peace and satisfaction in that moment of being heard. Right now, I have a great number of opportunities to listen well to my grandchildren in my mind, full-time, three of them under the age of seven, and they like to be heard a lot. (laughs) And sometimes listening to them is not that easy. I prefer just to tell them how it is and have them not talk to me so much. But they do. And the better that I listen, the happier they are and the more they love me, which is good for them. So having taken on... The bodhisattva practice, which I would say all of us here have taken on this practice, our practice is to really listen and, in fact, as much as possible to be more concerned with listening than to be being heard. Sometimes we maybe need to be heard, but mostly we should be turning our ear and our eyes towards hearing and seeing the cries of the world as they arise right in front of us. And in that moment of pure, 100% focused awareness to listen to the cries of the world, in that moment, we are experiencing, we are uh, enacting the unbound, unfabricated, unborn. Nothing can destroy this moment. It's the greatest gift we could ever have. It's always here for us. It never neglects us. It does not abandon us. It doesn't judge us. It kicks nobody out. Holds the whole universe. It's available to us always. It's so ordinary that we miss it. But no amount of anybody saying this will help us truly experience it. It's up to each of us to deeply realize the extraordinary gift of this present moment. And even though we have Nagarjuna's teachings that the moment, the present cannot be found, Really, the present that cannot be found is a conditioned present. One cannot land on a thing called the present. It's not an entity. It can't be put in a box. It can't be measured. So absolutely, Nagarjuna is 100% right in his teachings where he helps us see that we cannot get hold of the present just as we cannot get hold of the past or the future. But at the same time, as we cannot get hold of a conditioned present, we cannot get rid of the unconditioned present. So by the simple act of listening and observing, we are letting ourselves fall into the arms of the present. So I I want to read this quote again and maybe stop a few spots along the way and see how it sits with you. I'm hoping the words can maybe sink in for you. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One, this is Shakyamuni Buddha, was staying near Savathi at Jetta's Grove Anitha Pindika's monastery. And on that occasion, the Blessed One was instructing, urging, rousing, and encouraging the monks with Dharma talk, concerned with unbinding. So, even here in this paragraph that is sort of setting the scene, the Blessed One was instructing, urging, rousing, and encouraging. You can, you can visualise that he was there wholeheartedly with every fibre of his being, speaking to the monks, wanting them to receive the Dharma, wanting them to be able to apprehend reality. That is what he wanted. He was not distracted. He wasn't talking to them and thinking about something else. That's not what the blessed one was doing he was giving wholeheartedly every fiber of his body he was wholeheartedly instructing urging rousing and encouraging so he was in that in that moment completely s- swimming in the ocean of the unborn unbound unfabricated and the monks receptive, attentive, focusing their entire awareness, lending ear, listened to the Dharma. So here also the Buddha was giving himself wholeheartedly with no distraction whatsoever to the monks. And they, in turn, were receiving the teachings wholeheartedly. And this is sometimes a little rare to have this wholehearted face-to-face, eye-to-eye, ear-to-ear meeting. Which is why I think all of us, when we experience it in a moment, in a day, we love it so much. We love it so much because it's a deep wisdom in us that knows this is the true reality, that exact moment when we are heard. We all know this moment of eye contact, being met with someone, and you feel completely seen and heard by that person, or you know they felt seen and heard by you. There's a deep wisdom in us that we find that such a a rejoicing experience. So the monks were receptive, attentive, focusing their entire awareness, lending ear, and they listened to the Dharma. So then, on realising the significance of this, the Blessed One on that occasion exclaimed, So in this moment, the Blessed One realised here is an opportunity for the subtle, deep teachings of the unbound to be taught. And so he exclaimed, that's what it says, he exclaimed these words. There is, monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. If there were not that unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, It would not be the case that escape from the born, become, made, fabricated, would be discerned. And there's another bit that I just want to say here. The reason that we have restless dissatisfaction in our daily life is because there is a deep wisdom in us that knows there is something beyond or. I'm not sure what word to use. You could say beyond or cutting through. There is something that cuts through or permeates all the way through the born, the fabricated, the bound, that that dies, that is born and dies, that rises and falls away. There's a deeper wisdom in us that knows that, and that is why we are restless. So even our restlessness, we should turn to our restlessness with great thanks and appreciation because that restlessness is our deep wisdom saying there is more to this than making sure that, you know, you make it through your day in whatever way one makes it through our day. There is that and we should love that too, that there is more than that. And and that restlessness in us is because we discern We discern that there is an unborn, unbound, unfabricated. And so the Blessed One continues. But precisely because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, escape from the born, become, made, fabricated is discerned. We sense that there is a way to live. We are where we are not tossed around by the winds of the world. Where, where we are not tossed around by the impermanence of everything. We discern that there is. And that's why we came to practice, I would say. All of us came to practice because of that discernment. Um, Okay, so the last thing I would like to say about listening, that all, at all times, deep listening is the most valuable thing that we can probably do as bodhisattvas, is to listen and to see, to listen and to see, to see and to hear. And this is what we also want in turbulent times. So this is what we want. For times like right now, where many people are anxious about what is happening in Europe, we want uh, people to listen to each other, to listen respectfully, to listen compassionately. And we should see ourselves in all of the players. We should see ourselves in all of the players, the aggressors and the defenders compassionately and respectfully see ourselves in them and when we do that that deep listening that we're doing really in our mind because we're not in a situation to do it face to face but we can do it in our mind we can listen deeply with our mind then our words and our actions are less likely to contribute to harm So uh, I would like to open things up. Do you usually do announcements first, Patrick? So we do announcements first? Yes. So we'll we'll finish with the closing chant and then uh, people can leave who have other things they need to attend to and others can stay for conversation. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to be coming to.